the Oxfordshire News Podcast with Jack FM's news team. Hiya, I'm Emma Kerwin. You might have heard long COVID being mentioned in the news quite a bit, but do you actually know what it is and how people are being affected by it? This latest episode of the Oxfordshire News Podcast aims to shine a light on the longer effects of coronavirus. Here's what's coming up. It is a bit worrying thinking about, you know, how long is this going to go on for? And it's not clear. As a young person who hasn't had coronavirus, to my knowledge, I'm scared of it. I'm scared of long COVID. We do have some patients who have had the symptoms for up to a year or so, but are now starting to make a significant recovery. The health impacts of long COVID includes brain fog, fatigue, chronic respiratory failure, abnormal heart rhythm and anxiety. Tim Clurden, a bursar at Green Templeton College at Oxford University, is among the estimated 1.1 million people across the country affected by long COVID symptoms. I interviewed him more than a year ago, not long after he was discharged from hospital after becoming really unwell with coronavirus. Firstly, here's a recap of that chat. I was wheeled out in a wheelchair through an absolutely deserted A&E reception area and um, I was let out and stood in the sun with the wind. It was quite amazing and then my wife turned up in the car. It was almost too powerful, too deep for words. Tim and I caught up on Zoom recently and he looks physically well, but he told me how he's been plagued with fatigue and brain fog and he's worried because he doesn't know when he'll be back to normal. Just over a year on, I still find my life quite definitely circumscribed by fatigue. People ask me, well, what, what is that just tiredness? And I say, well, the difference between tiredness and fatigue, this is my definition, is in the case of tiredness, uh, a good night's sleep or um, you know, a rest in the afternoon and you can shift it. Fatigue is something underlying and just goes, whatever you do, a, a good night's sleep won't help. It still remains with you. And uh, unfortunately, that's where I still am. Other physical manifestations in my case, and I know there's a lot of different ones, are continuing weight loss. I've now lost um, nearly 60 pounds in a year. Um, And I get um, pretty serious headaches at random every now and then, um, every week or so, which last for a couple of days. And um, paracetamol and whatever just have no impact whatsoever. The weird thing is, um, one of the other after effects for me was a complete abhorrence of alcohol. My body just doesn't want alcohol. But the headaches feel very much like a hangover. So I'm getting all the disadvantages of drinking, but uh, none of the fun. But um, the, the real issue is, is, is the fatigue. And in practical terms, what it means is that um, I can work, but I do it working from home and uh, on, on a screen like everybody else. But it means I don't have to commute, even though my commute is not long. When I do do it, I'm absolutely whacked. And I have to be very careful on the amount of hours I do. So I'm having to, eight hours pretty much is the day. But after midday, um, my cognitive functions start um, degrading. And so I don't do any written work after after lunch or after about midday. Um, Bitter experience shows that if I do that, I only have to go back and correct it 
the next day. So I do all my important thinking work in the morning and then um, stop. And uh, my wife, who also had COVID at the same time as I did, and who's also suffering from fatigue, um, and I, uh, we're very, very commonly in bed by half past eight in the evening. And um, most nights, certainly by nine. It's a very rare night when we go past nine o'clock in the evening. So we can function in this lockdown world, but um, in normal real life, I'm not quite sure how it's going to work. And uh, I am a little bit anxious. Mm. In parallel to all of this, I've been involved in um, five or six research programs, one out of the JR or the Churchill, looking at the physical after effects and some of the psychological ones. Um, so I've been MRI'd more times in a year than um, I ever thought I would be in my life. So I know I have um, some lung damage, but fortunately all my other internal organs are fine. But otherwise all my physical uh, manifestations are, are normal. There is nothing that they can see that is um, clearly wrong. So, um, And there is a lot of research going on into why the fatigue continues um, and a lot of interest in some of the earlier uh, sagas over post-viral fatigue like yuppie flu um, and it's it's a hard one because you look well people say to me oh Tim don't you look well and um, it's so boring going through it all um, so yeah 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 no it's fine just a bit of tiredness and say, oh, what you need is a good night's sleep yeah, 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 that's fine. Um, it's just not worth arguing the point or discussing the point. So it's something that you sort of keep within yourself and you just have to manage on your own. But um, it is a bit worrying thinking about, you know, how long is this going to go on for? Um, and it's not clear. Um, and every now and then, perhaps every two, three weeks, if I overdo it, and by overdoing it, I mean working slightly longer, um, I suddenly hit a, a, a brick wall and um, I have to stay absolutely um, in, not immobile, but doing nothing for two, three days. The last time it was four days. Um, and then slowly everything comes back together again and I'm able to get back to work. Fortunately, I have a very good boss, the principal of Green Templeton, who's very understanding and supportive. I also have a very, very good GP who um, happens to be an alumni of the college I work at. And um, she's been absolutely brilliant throughout. But of course, like the rest of us, is stumped on just what to do. There are no obvious ways of sorting out the fatigue. With that fatigue, because I had glandular fever as well when I was younger, is it worse than that in your experience? It's very similar. Um, you get some aches with it as well and it's the cognitive function that goes but the fatigue it's sometimes it, it is very similar and it, it feels like sometimes in the evenings just having to sheer effort of will you know make a cup of tea walk upstairs have a shower go to bed just have to keep saying you can do it you can do it you can do it and then collapsing 
and it is a bit like the glandular fever, only it, it feels somehow more intense. Um, maybe it's because I'm a bit older. I was in my 30s when I got glandular fever, but I was knocked out for six months then. But this is, is it just somehow feels much harder and tougher. And seeing progress on recovery is taking longer, much, much longer. And there's obviously the physical act of, like you say, just the day-to-day things, but that must take a mental toll as well, especially with your job role. Yes, my my work, I'm also uh, a doctor in archaeology of Iraq, so I'm also publishing papers on that. So, um, yeah, it's the brain is quite important to me. And the fact that after for the afternoons it's not really working properly is really frustrating and I was chuckling with my GP last week was saying that it's taking uh, three evenings to watch an, an episode of Midsummer, and I never work out who did it and I never remember who's done it so um, I can at least watch them all again but yeah it's really frustrating and because it's not something that people could see it's quite hard for people to not so much empathize but understand that um, you know for me an afternoon meeting is is really hard work and you know that's why I wanted us to meet early in the morning because you get me good uh, right now if you got me at four in the afternoon for start my voice goes down a couple of octaves don't know why but there's something to do with the, the lung damage I guess um, and um, it, I just get slower and slower. You know, it's a bit like, well, when you had the um, glandular fever after effects, um, it, it's not really understood why, why you get this fatigue with no physical symptoms. Um, I've had numerous brain scans. I'm lined up for another set of more detailed ones. You know, the, the research team say, well, it's something to do with the virus jumping the blood brain, the blood membrane barrier. Um, when you lose your sense of taste and smell, that's, you know, that's a neurological damage. No, there's, there's no real understanding of what it is. There's no tablet you can take. Um, you know, pace yourself seems to be the only advice that can be given. So I'm waiting to see what the long COVID clinic says. I'm, I'm hoping they take me on the books, but I know they've got a lot of people and I'm probably not one of the more serious ones. But um, I'd be very interested to see what they say. But no, my GP, for all her brilliant support and understanding, there's not a lot she can do. Do you think that more people could be unaware that they're suffering some symptoms? I think there is a way of pretending it's not there. Um, so I suspect there are more people with it out there, um, particularly the fatigue. You know, you could disguise it with a drink um, and, you know, a bit like you do with flu. You think, oh, God, you know, have a quick snifter and I'll be OK. And it powers you up and gets you going. And of course, with the flu in the end, you recover with this. Um, I think you, you could probably carry on and just think you're really tired you could say well and and to a degree I think it's true people are fed up with zoom uh, 
people are fed up with lockdown. There is a, a general weariness out there. Um, but I, I think if you had it really badly, you would know. And particularly the headaches, you know, they are very powerful, or in my case, very powerful. Um, and um, I, I think it's just putting the putting all the bits together and thinking this isn't normal. This isn't how things really work. Um, as I say to my GP and the research people, I'm 61. I've lived in this body for a long time. I kind of know what is and isn't right. And this is not normal. So I, I, I agree with you. I think there probably are a lot more people who've, who've got it, but um, haven't put the two elements together or who who are frightened to do so because it will impact on um, them being able to carry on working. Uh, you know, I have a brother who's in a situation like that, where his employer is not terribly sympathetic. And, um, you know, to say, oh, I need I need to have restricted working hours is not not uh, really acceptable. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why people might be not wanting to confront it as an issue and identify it. And also, there is the, the horrible reality that there's not much that can be done. So, um, well, I'll wait and see when I get to the long COVID. It's taken a year for us to really get to the point where it's recognised as an issue. So, it, it's a tricky one. You mentioned how Oxford has been supportive of you, and then, you know, how your brother isn't as being supported, which I'm assuming um, will be reflective elsewhere. Um, do you do you think that it's good that this kind of conversation is taking place to maybe encourage employers to be more aware, but in the same breath, can employers actually kind of say yes work you know half your hours like how would you see that happening like in the long term if this is something that um you know is established i th i think there's there's two things probably need to happen i mean i get it you know all of us trying to run a business i am as well um I, we've been very badly hit all businesses have been very badly hit by COVID. So we're all under stress. But I think there's two things that would be really helpful. One is um, for long COVID to be recognized as a as an issue. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult one at the moment to put on a sick note. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm a bit tired. Um, I get headaches. Yeah, right. Okay. You know, who doesn't? Um, and I think somehow clinically we need to be able to describe what long COVID is and then be able to uh, formalise that so that it can be used in in sick certificates and the rest um, and to be acknowledged as a condition. I think secondly, from a employer point of view, and certainly as somebody who's been through it, and we've got a couple of people, at, members of college, uh, staff who've had COVID, um, I think it's um, just sitting down and talking it through with them and saying just how are you really? Because the temptation to say, yeah, I'm fine, you know, I'm fine, Tim, you know, I just want to come back to work um, is, is, is there because people are worried about their jobs. But um, 
you know, just sitting down with people, say, just just talk me through it. And it helps, of course, that I'm I'm a fellow sufferer. So, you know, what I have found with the members of staff who've had it, and I've sat down and talked to them, I say, gosh, you know, you're the first person who's who's recognised that as an issue. Yeah, and I get that as well. You know, things like um, suddenly losing my sense of taste and smell again. And, you know, I get that occasionally. It only lasts for a day or two. But um, it's weird. And so what are you going to do? Tell everybody? No, but you know it's not right. So I think sitting down and talking to your staff, how, how is the fatigue? How are you? Um, some people uh, have mental issues, you know, mental well-being. Um, it can be depressing. This is just going on and on and on. It's pretty debilitating on a social life. Um, if you're having to look after kids or you're a carer, you know, the burdens are all on you. So I think that the two things I would recommend, one is, um, you know, let's have a clinical description of this so that it can be recognised. And secondly, as an employer, talk to your staff who've been through COVID and really have a proper constructive discussion about how it's impacted on them and see what um, can be done to help match their needs to the requirements of the job. How optimistic are you for your future and regaining a bit more of the old tin back? <laughs> um, I, you know, you've got to be optimistic and um, it's, I am a lot, lot better than I was in April. So, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound as though this has just been one long grey tunnel of gloom. It hasn't. Um, but uh, I am a little bit worried about uh, 22nd of June, when in theory everything reopens. Um, and I'm just thinking, gosh, am I really going to be able to sustain that sort of life? Right now, I couldn't. Um, so it's that not knowing when is this going to sort itself out? Is it going to sort itself out? I, I'm remaining on the optimistic side that it's just a matter of time. But of course, you know, if you Google yuppie flu or anything like that, um, you know, some people it goes on for years. So I, I'm hoping that it is going to get better. I'm also hoping, and it's why I'm, you know, partially why I'm taking part in this, Emma, but also why I'm taking part in all the research. Um, a lot of money is being thrown at COVID. And I'm hoping part of it will come up with a, some sort of solutions on this post-viral fatigue. And that would apply not just to, um, to COVID, but hopefully people like you and I who in the future get glandular fever because I'm sure it's going to be found to be very similar. So, yeah, broadly speaking, I'm optimistic, just a little bit worried about the path towards uh, the moment when the, um, the old tin comes back again. A GP in Ensham told me that what Tim is experiencing isn't uncommon. Dr. Ama Latif told me about some of the patients he's seen with long COVID symptoms. The number of patients who have long COVID and symptoms of long COVID are continuing to rise um, and uh, many patients will have a variety of different uh, symptoms. So some patients will have just ongoing fatigue, so tiredness, inability to concentrate. Uh, some patients will have shortness of breath. So uh, I've got patients who 
previously were fairly fit and active and now might be struggling to you know even walk to the end of the street and so forth um, and it does seem that some of these symptoms are quite long lasting so uh, I have patients who um, have uh, had these symptoms for up to a year now and are only just starting to make a significant improvement. Other patients who are much uh, earlier in that time period uh, but are struggling with their symptoms. So I think it's uh, one of those things that's fairly new for the medical world. We don't fully understand it, but as I say, we are starting to understand that um, there are a variety of symptoms and uh, it affects patients for um, you know a, a, a differing level of time, uh, but certainly up to a year is not unheard of. What kind of things are you recommending to your patients at the moment when, as you say, it is, it is very new? Yeah, so it depends very much on what the symptoms are that the patients have. Um, some of the symptoms uh, can be managed by uh, access to some services within Oxfordshire um, and uh, patients can speak to their um, GP or healthcare professional to find out about what those might be. There is a long COVID clinic within Oxfordshire where patients who might be uh, struggling specifically can be referred and that's a multidisciplinary team that has access to lots of different services and treatment options Uh, and I'd certainly recommend that anyone who's listening who is struggling with symptoms of long COVID um, considers approaching their healthcare professional for a uh, referral to that service. Are the patients that you're coming across quite worried about this? So certainly that seems to be uh, one of the things that troubles patients the most and understandably so is not knowing at this stage what the natural recovery will will look like and the reason is we just haven't seen enough patients to be able to um, you know fully understand that we are finding though that lots of patients um, do make a full recovery Uh, and as I say we we, we do have some patients who have had the symptoms for up to a year or so but are now starting to make a, a significant recovery so what I would say to patients out there is if they are having significant symptoms uh, that actually there is help available do go and seek the help and uh, we're confident that with the right help we can help all the patients that need it. We know that there's going to be an independent public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. Do you think that long COVID should be a factor of that? Certainly I think it's uh, something that should be considered to be part of that inquiry Uh, and the reason is that although the COVID pandemic is something that has had a significant impact obviously over the last year, uh, long COVID is likely to have an ongoing impact uh, not only for patients and their families but also for the NHS and the services that we need to provide so it would be sensible to consider what the impact of that might be uh, going forward. Dr Latif is recommending that anyone who might be struggling with long COVID to speak to their GP as they could be referred to the long COVID clinic in Oxfordshire. Currently around 15 to 20 patients are being seen at the clinic each week. It's based at the Churchill Hospital and includes a team of doctors, chest experts, psychologists and more as you'll hear in this next chat. My name's Emily Fraser and I'm a HS consultant and I'm the clinical lead for the post-COVID clinic in Oxfordshire. I initially started the clinic um, last summer really to follow up patients who had been discharged from hospital because we were worried about their, their rehabilitation needs um, and kind of long-term lung complications. Um, but early on, realised actually that there was an awful lot of patients in the community who were really struggling with their symptoms, who had never been admitted to hospital 
hospital. Um, and so initially started seeing these patients um, individually, um, but then realized how very complex they were and that like, a, a multidisciplinary assessment was required. Um, and so then I joined forces with the Emma um, and then we got a, a team essentially on board to be able to um, essentially holistically assess patients. So within the clinic, what we aim to do is, 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 it, is take a very careful history, assess their symptoms, make sure that we investigate them as appropriately, but also start with the management um, of, 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 their, of their condition. So making sure that they see physiotherapists, occupational therapy if need be, psychology or psychiatry. So that's essentially what we do in the clinic. Yeah, so I'm Emma Tucker and I'm the post-COVID rehabilitation coordinator for Oxford Health NHS Trust. So we work in Oxford Health and we're the community trust um, and we initially sort of set up a service to be able to support patients on discharge from hospital. But in the same way that Emily has said, we quickly transitioned to recognising the growing population of patients suffering with ongoing symptoms that hadn't actually been admitted to hospital. So then sort of diagnosed with the with long COVID. So we um, have been lucky enough to start working and um, collaborating with our chronic fatigue colleagues um, and our psychological therapists to be able to, to establish a fairly um, a fairly well-rounded rehab model to support these patients with the multi-complex symptoms they're experiencing. So often what we will do is we will initially see them within the clinic, take the, and take the assessments, but then after that, they will be, um, the rest of the rehabilitation will occur within the community, within Emma's team, so they can be supported through their recovery. So it's essentially, it's an integrated service with the clinic um, forming the initial assessment and management, and then following on in the community for the longer term um, management. What symptoms are patients experiencing and how is it impacting them? Well, I think that, you know, I think we increasingly recognise that long COVID can cause a multitude of symptoms. So fatigue and breathlessness are, are really predominant problems. But but actually, patients will often have, you know, a, a fairly long list of, of things that are bothering them. So, you know, depending on, on, on who we see, they may have, so breathlessness is a predominant symptom. It may be fatigue. A lot of people are suffering with chest pains. Some people have chronic cough. Brain fog is a symptom that's often mentioned. Um, so there really are a wide range in kind of a multitude of symptoms that, you know, and I think that's why we, we need this kind of a holistic approach and actually managing symptom by symptom often hasn't been very fruitful. And, and certainly when the clinic was first started and we were seeing patients early on they would they'd often go from one specialist to another have investigations to it to investigate that one specific symptom um, and I think that was fairly unsatisfactory both for patient and clinician um, so so yes it's, it's a very multi-system um, syndrome. You mentioned about brain fog and fatigue then and I've had a chat with um an Oxford professor who has been experiencing both of those symptoms among others, but it's really had a big impact on his life. And he was basically saying how worried he, he is about, yes. you know, when he'll get back to his normal self. Absolutely. How do yeah, you help people with that? 
Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of anxiety and very understandable anxiety in this, in this population. And a lot of the patients we see were previously very well and they were highly functioning. And to actually to be where they are now is, is, is a huge change. And I think they're really struggling. So, you know, I think I think we have an awful lot to learn um, to help them on their journey to recovery. And actually, you know, there, there is a lot of unknowns that are still out there. Um, we do often seem to find that the fatigue and the brain fog are, are bound up with each other. Um, we often find that people will struggle more with that, you know, as towards the end of the day or, you know, if they've had more of a busy day. And I think a lot of our, our management strategies kind of go back to actual, you know, just, just basic principles of making sure people are able to kind of pace themselves carefully, not to overdo it. Um, and, and recognize as well that we are we are learning and that they are we are learning with them. Um, I think what we're finding is that people are slowly getting better over the time, but that it, it's, it's a rocky journey with kind of you know times where people feel an awful lot better only to find themselves back in bed the following week. Um, so I think I think supporting people through their through their journey of recovery it is really important. I think a lot of that goes back down to, to pacing and expectation management. Um, and, and whilst we're doing that, obviously trying to understand more about the condition um, as we go along, both through research and through practical experience. Can you just explain a little bit more then about what actually happens at the clinic? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the clinic it takes place at the church hospital and we are doing a combination of face-to-face um, reviews as well as many over video um, consult, particularly um, when the pandemic was particularly problematic just to safety really um, so what patients will do is they will see um, generally a, a respiratory consultant or a rehabilitation doctor depending on on what their burden of symptoms are so I would see the ones for example who are particularly breathless um, so we'll take a very comprehensive history we'll talk through investigations and and what we're going to do in terms of kind of working them up if that's what, what we need to do um, we then um, think about what other kind of needs they have so they will often go and see Emma we will talk to them about breathing control exercises or pacing they may also see our chronic fatigue occupational therapist about the similar kind of similar types of kind of behavioral interventions um, they may see our psychologist or our our psychiatrist, we recognise that with any chronic health conditions, there there often is a large psychological component, which you know, um, you know, which you can't ignore when people you know need help in you know in their recovery. Um, and then after that, we make uh, you know decisions um, regarding their, their further management. So we do that both in the clinic, and we also do that as a team afterwards. So we have a big multidisciplinary team meeting where we can discuss the patients and just decide on on what we think the best plan is going forward particularly regarding their rehab within the community. Emma can you just talk me through a little bit more then about your role and how it is helping people? Yes absolutely so um, as Emily said so the consultant one of the consultants will see them in clinic and then often they'll come through to me um, and I'll sort of one of the first things I want to know is how those symptoms are affecting them right now in their day-to-day -day life and then I'll try and support them with some symptom management techniques we'll talk through different ways of managing their breathlessness we'll talk about how to sort of plan and pace their days to in order to be able to aid recovery 
we'll talk about sleep hygiene and we'll talk about obviously how it's impacting their day-to-day life and returning to work and how that's having an effect in the home and and the role within the family so we'll set them off with some strategies to put into place and then we'll follow them up um, within our within the community team um, to enable them to continue on that journey but I think one of the most important things that I sort of really try and get uh, the message through to patients right at the beginning is is managing the expectations of the recovery um, but then also the acceptance the acceptance of where they are right now um, because I feel like once once we have that then we can begin the recovery journey and um, do you have an idea then of how long this recovery journey is for people now or does it really depend on the person I think it very very much depends on the person I think if if I like I said if, if we're able to get to a point of acceptance and then allow the person to understand how to pace, um, prioritise, delegate, then that will enable them to recover. However, if we find that people, if they continue to keep pushing and keep challenging their body and their recovery, then that can cause setbacks. And so the trajectory of recovery can be that bit longer. Does that make your job harder at all? People come in and they want answers and they want to know when they're going to feel better. And I think all of us would agree that we would love to be able to give them that that magic pill that then made it all, you know, back to normal for them. But unfortunately, we, we are unable to do that. But we do understand how to be able to support them now and how to be able to take them on that recovery journey. And we are see people coming through the clinic, aren't we, and the service who have you know, who have got there or yeah. are close to getting there. Um, and so, you know, that is really nice to see that, you know, that there were patient, patients who, you know, had horrendous symptoms back last spring and have been hugely debilitated by them, but actually, you know, over the course of the year have, have got back to, you know, a degree, if not almost complete normality. So we're getting a lot of success stories, um, but we still have patients who, you know, are significantly struggling. As an Emma said, quite a lot of it has to be about expectation management. Um, you know, well, at the same time as, as, as doing the kind of research to kind of try and understand better uh, about this syndrome so that we can potentially kind of offer kind of interventions that are, are going to, you know, further their recovery in a more effective manner, potentially. That was chest consultant Emily Fraser from Oxford University Hospitals and Emma Tucker from Oxford Health speaking to me about the long COVID clinic in Oxfordshire. Next up is Leila Moran, the MP for Oxford West and Abingdon, who chairs the all-party parliamentary group which scrutinises the government's response to coronavirus. She says some of her constituents are suffering with long COVID. The Lib Dem wants the government to set up a compensation scheme for key workers who worked on the front line during the pandemic, caught coronavirus and are now affected by long COVID and can't work. This is not just the same as having a bit of a cold. Um, The symptoms of long COVID are absolutely debilitating and people describe mental fog as being one of the worst symptoms that they get, which basically means that they even struggle with the very basic tasks of getting around the house. So this is an enormous problem. Um, It's not one that looks like it's going away. The latest ONS estimates suggest that there's 1.1 million people in the UK living with this now, and there's a huge range of symptoms. I've just described a few. But as a young 
person uh, who hasn't had coronavirus, to my knowledge, I'm scared of it. I'm scared of long COVID. And I wish that the government was more forthcoming with people about the risks of long COVID, because I think it would make people think twice if they ever wanted to think about breaking the rules or were hesitant about getting vaccinated. Long COVID is itself enough of a good reason to want to be part of the solution to COVID. Have there been many people in your constituency that have got in contact and talked about how they've been affected by long COVID? Yeah, there's been a few and there's, there is a little bit of a group. Um, they've asked not to sort of be um, publicised as such, but it, it tends to be people who found each other online through other groups. Um, and there are two sort of big groups. There's a big long COVID uh, support group that contains tens of thousands of people. The last I heard, it was in the order of 30,000 people. Um, and that was a, from across the world, but then people have found each other. Um, there's also a group for children. Um, so children can also suffer from long COVID. Um, and the estimate is that it's somewhere between 7 and 12 percent of children who uh, get COVID will go on to develop this. Um, and their symptoms are quite different. So they don't tend to suffer with the debilitating brain fog, the fatigue. It's more perhaps rashes, but they, t they were off school for a very long time and, and people at first didn't really appreciate this. So the stories that I've had about them is GPs not appreciating, especially earlier on in the pandemic, that children could get it uh, and then not diagnosing them with it so the children couldn't get the help that they needed. And the parents were at their wit's end because quite often themselves, they had long COVID too, because the family got it more or less at the same time. And they were trying to fight uh, for their children. Um, it has been really an emotional time. Um, and the other side to it is the effect it's had on people's jobs. So there's a, another a constituent who's contacted me, um, who's a teacher, and found themselves uh, in a position where they couldn't work full time anymore. Uh, they had to go part-time. They're now really concerned for how they're going to make ends meet, but also concerned if they're ever going to get over it. And they are coming to terms, some people with long COVID, with the fact that it's been a year for some of them since that first wave, because they got it in the first wave. And particularly for frontline workers, they had to go in. Everyone else was allowed to stay at home, but frontline key workers were asked to go in. They got it. And a year later, they're still suffering from it. And they're coming to terms with the fact, you know, are they disabled forever? now and it's really heartbreaking to hear those stories. You've mentioned about the APPG where are you at with what you're calling on the government to do? So the All Party Group started hearing about long Covid actually all the way back last summer so I think it was August that we had our very first sessions where this came up and it was it for uh, doctors and nurses at first um, but then it also became obvious that the teachers were involved too so our top call at the time was simply for the government to recognise that long COVID existed. Now, I'm pleased to say that since then, Matt Hancock has admitted that it's there. We've developed uh, nice guidelines. So that was a start. And there are some parts of the country, including in Oxfordshire, where we do have long COVID clinics that people can be referred to. Um, but that point around, you know, those frontline workers who went to work, especially during that first wave where we didn't understand the virus as much. Mask wearing was not as much of a, a thing, um, especially in schools. Um, we are asking for the government to set up a compensation scheme for those frontline key workers who find themselves now in a position where they can't make ends meet as a result of having gone in to do their duty by the country. We have a similar scheme for the armed forces 
And we think there should be the same scheme for frontline workers as well. In your opinion, then, what are the benefits if the government does turn around and say, right, we can set up this compensation scheme? Well, the benefit clearly is to, first of all, the frontline workers who, let's be frank, they deserve it. We were there on the doorsteps every Thursday clapping for them, thanking them for their work, the beautiful rainbows, thanking the NHS workers, but also the teachers and social care workers, you know, all those people who literally put their lives on the line. And we know that disproportionately, many of those people did lose their lives. And I was proud to lead the group of MPs that pushed for the compensation scheme for those families of those who passed away. But the side to that that wasn't spoken about was those who got ill, ill for the long term. And we've heard of teachers, as I said, going part-time. We've heard of head teachers on their final warnings, risking losing their jobs, social care workers um, who weren't being caught uh, by the NHS scheme that was set up. So the NHS, if you are an NHS worker, your pay hasn't been docked, albeit yet, and there's a concern that that might go. But a very similar scheme needs to be set up for all NHS and social care workers as well. So they deserve it. They put their lives on the line. They were on the front line. This was a fight that we have yet to win. And these are our injured soldiers. They deserve a compensation scheme. And it would mean a huge amount so that those people who have got long COVID can actually recover and hopefully get back to work in these frontline services that we still rely on even now. The government told me it's committed to supporting people with the long-term effects of coronavirus and it's investing £50 million into research to find the best treatments for patients. If you think you've got any symptoms of long COVID, please listen to the experts in this episode of the Oxford News podcast and speak to your doctor. And also just know you're not alone in what you're going through. Thanks for listening. The Oxfordshire News podcast with Jack FM's news team.